This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. The more we understand about the genetic variations that affect our brains, the more questions are raised. For example, are we a product of nature or nurture? And what should we test for? I worry that people will get tests of themselves, their children, their fetuses, their embryos, and will be told, ooh, there's a 10 times higher than average risk that this person will have schizophrenia. Plus, why why loss is bad for men, the usefulness of junk DNA, and a crunchy gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for May 2014 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. This month, I'm reporting back again from the Genetics Society Spring Meeting, which was held at the beginning of April at the Royal Society in London. Called Psychiatric Genetics, Pathways and Prospects, the meeting featured talks from leading scientists from around the world, discussing how genetic research is shedding light on mental illness and improving life for sufferers. One speaker was Dr David Sweat from the University of Alabama, who's researching one of the most fundamental questions in brain research, how we make memories. We're interested in how experience, especially learning experience, uh, impacts gene readout in the brain. Um, those, that type of gene readout is known to be necessary to make long-term memories. And so we're interested in the impact of experience on gene transcription in the brain, and in particular focusing on a set of mechanisms called epigenetic molecular mechanisms. So those are things like chemical modification of DNA and regulation of the three-dimensional structure of genes in the brain and have found that those mechanisms are an important uh, regulator of memory-associated, uh, learning-associated, experience-dependent alterations in gene readout in the brain. So obviously the challenge is all our brain cells have the same set of DNA, but they do lots and lots of different things and, and work in lots of different ways. How do you start studying these and unpicking what's actually going on? It is uh, very difficult. There are some new types of approaches that we and others are starting to use where, for example, you can use uh, transgene and can genetically tag a specific kind of cell, a specific kind of neuron, for example, that you know is involved in uh, forming a particular kind of memory, and then use a, a procedure called fluorescence-activated cell sorting to um, specifically sort out those specific memory-associated cells, and then you can uh, look to see whether the molecular changes that you're interested in happen in that actual specific subset of cells in the brain. That's a new emerging technology, but it has promised to kind of solve some of this problem that you're talking about. So you're literally pulling out the cells that have made a particular memory. That, that sounds incredibly powerful. Then how, how do you look at them? What, what are you looking for? We are uh, most interested right now in uh, looking for uh, direct chemical reactions that occur uh, with the DNA in the brain, uh, a, chemistry, a chemical reaction called DNA methylation, cytosine methylation. So there are enzymes that put a methyl group on cytosines, and those methyl groups, uh, when present, are very powerful regulators of gene readout. And so we're interested in trying to identify uh, the specific genes and the specific, and specific uh, types of cells where those changes happen, uh, where, where there's been this actual physical, uh, this chemical uh, reaction 
uh, with DNA to regulate gene readout associated with memory. And from what I know of the, the biology and the chemistry of DNA, these kind of methylation tags, they're usually associated with sort of long-term, very static, you know, locking down DNA, so it, genes definitely get switched off. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening in the brain, is it? Uh, certainly, the, those types of uh, reactions happen in the brain. Uh, they're critically important uh, for uh, keeping a neuron a neuron, for example. Um, but it uh, does appear, uh, as you said, that there is an additional set of mechanisms that can dynamically regulate, put methyl groups on and off of a particular subset of genes that may be important for uh, the plasticity of the cell and how it, how it changes its function uh, in response to uh, a transient signal like a learning event. Can you tell me a bit about um, some of the experiments that you actually do to understand what's going on in the brain? What sort of systems are you using? Mm. We try to take a, an, a, an integrative approach, and so uh, almost all of our work involves behaving animals. We use a variety of different behavioral uh, paradigms. Most of them are uh, studying aspects, some aspect of learning and memory. We use a, a variety of spatial learning tasks, like the kind of classic animal in a maze. Uh, we use rats and mice for most of our studies. We use a variety of kind of reward-mediated behaviors. Um, where the animal learns that if they execute a certain behavioral pattern, they can get a, a reward. Um, and then we also use some training paradigms where an animal recognizes that it's in a threatening environment. Clearly, uh, uh, humans' uh, cognitive function is much more complicated than a rat or a mouse, and so we're probably only scratching the surface. Um, but the, the operating assumption, assumption for our work is that there are going to be at least uh, some set of shared molecular uh, and cellular mechanisms that are involved in both animal behavior and human behavior. How close do you think we are to really understanding how the brain is working at this kind of genetic on and off, what genes are working, uh, what's being switched on when and where? Uh, we're about 1% of the way there, I would say. Um, the, uh, once, once you start to really get in there and uh, use uh, whole epigenome types of approaches with next generation sequencing and looking at uh, the whole exome, everything that's being tran uh, transcribed out of the, out of the genome uh, in memory-associated cells, and start to then overlay all of the regular kind of transcription factors and everything that are involved. It's just, uh, it's clearly going to be horrendously uh, complex. And so it's going to require a lot of uh, hev heavy, uh, heavy lifting in terms of uh, doing the molecular characterization, in terms of the genes and the epigenetic marks that are changing, and then a lot of heavy-duty computational biology and, and modeling of, of that sort in bioinformatics analysis to even begin to try to put up together a cohesive a big picture of how it's all being uh, re uh, reacting, uh, mechanisms reacting with each other, and then uh, giving a final output. That was David Sweat from the University of Alabama. Also at the Genetic Society meeting, we heard from Professor Marcus Munafo from the University of Bristol. He's trying to get to the bottom of another big question in biology. How much of our personality is down to nature and how much is nurture? I started by asking him what we know so far about how our genes shape our response to events around us. In my opinion, there aren't many findings that are really robust, at least within the context of psychiatric genotypes. So there has been a lot of interest in, for example, whether specific genes influence your sensitivity to stressful life events or uh, in terms of the impact of those stressful life events on your risk of depression. 
or whether other specific genes specifically impact on the risk of cannabis use leading to um, schizophrenia and schizophrenia-like symptoms. Those stories are very compelling because, of course, we want to be able to identify environmental risk factors and, in particular, identify people who are most sensitive to them. But the difficulty is that many of those findings have proved hard to reproduce, that um, you have one initial study which looks very promising, but then as other people try to reproduce that finding, the evidence becomes much less consistent. And you mentioned stressful life events. I mean, I'm just about to move house. I'm finding that quite stressful, but someone might think, no, 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 it's just moving, that's fine. But they might think that a divorce or a terrible accident is stressful. How do, how do we define these kind of events? Surely that's another layer of complexity. Well, that's exactly right, and it's the kind of thing that um, psychologists like myself often get quite animated about. You know, how do we measure these things? Um, do we want to focus on objective measurement where people just report things, things that have happened to them, or do we want to focus on the subjective impact of those things? So one person might find moving house very stressful, and another person might not find it so stressful. If you just ask someone, have you moved house, then you have a measure of whether or not that thing happened to them, but not necessarily what the impact of, of that potentially stressful life event on that person was. And some, some of the talks we've heard about today have used animal models, sort of animal learning, animal reward. Can animal models tell us anything about this? Because presumably it's a bit easier to control the situations that animals are in. So one of the great advantages in principle of animal models is exactly that, that you can control the environment much more closely and then you can um, modify that environment in a sort of parametric way to see what the impact of introducing stress is to uh, animals which are perhaps you know genetically identical or from the same strain and that's great in principle but actually as more evidence has emerged it's become clear that what we think of as a highly controlled environment still does contain a certain amount of variability. So, for example, across different experiments, you might have different people handling the animals, different researchers running one experiment or the next experiment. And it seems that even factors like that, which we try to control as much as possible, can have an impact on the genetic effects that we observe. And we can do as much as we can to train people to behave as consistently as possible when they're in that situation of being the researcher, but we can only do that to a degree. We can automate as many of our processes as possible, but even then there's going to be stochastic variability in the environment that the animals are in, just random fluctuations in the environment that they find themselves in that might have um, an important impact. And so part of the difficulty is that there's just so much complexity in terms of the nature of the environmental exposures that even in those controlled environments, um, there may be too much complexity for us to pick out reliable gene interaction, uh, gene environment interactions that we can reproduce over multiple experiments. And it's sounding to me like the picture is very complex. Yeah, the things that happen to us are very complex, very individual. Our own genetic makeup is individual. What is the future for this kind of research, trying to unpick you know, nature versus nurture? Well, I think the first step is um, to proceed with um, the ongoing efforts that um, exist to identify genetic variants that are directly associated with these outcomes. I think that's the most robust starting point. You know, these very large studies that um, combine data collaboratively to identify common and increasingly rare genetic variants that are directly associated with our outcomes of interest. Once we've got a better understanding of what the um, 
clear, robust, direct genetic associations are with these outcomes of interest, and we know what the environmental exposures are that make a difference, then we can start to um, look at the interplay between the two with a bit more confidence that both of the main effects, if you like, that we're looking at um, are robust. There are always going to be technological advances, so we're moving already from genome-wide association studies through to whole genome sequencing, for example, which is going to become commonplace in the next few years. But there's also increasing interest in the extent to which we can improve the measurements that we take, improve the precision of the phenotypes that we measure, um, and refine the outcomes that we use and the environmental exposures that we use to much more precisely capture um, what people are feeling and uh, what people are experiencing. And that should improve our ability to detect these genetic effects, these environmental effects, and hopefully, ultimately, their interplay. And what's the kind of long-term goal for this? Because uh, obviously understanding whether something is more nature or more nurture and the interplay of our genes and our environment, what would be the, the aim of this knowledge? What could we do with it? Um, there are a few different aims and, and what your aim is will depend partly on your perspective. So understanding the um, genetic antecedents of uh, mental health problems and psychiatric illness will hopefully tell us more about the underlying neurobiology and may in principle identify new drug targets for example understanding more about the environmental factors that uh, play a role will allow us to again um, potentially develop interventions but also identify at-risk groups and both of those are important goals in their own right um, it, it's not clear to me at least whether gene environment interactions are actually going to add that much to either of those efforts because of the limitations that exist at the moment in our ability to um, identify robust replicable interaction effects just because of the sheer complexity of the system that we're dealing with so at the moment i think we're in um, on much firmer ground when we look for direct effects main effects and it becomes much more complex when we start to look for interaction effects that was Marcus Minafo from the University of Bristol. And now it's time for a roundup of this month's genetics news. Writing in the journal Science this week, researchers at Cambridge University have made a step forward in understanding and potentially tackling Hutchinson-Guilford progeria syndrome, HGPS, a rare but distressing accelerated ageing disease. Caused by an unknown genetic fault, people with HGPS age dramatically from six months of age and usually only live until their teen years. Researchers now know that cells from HGPS patients contain misshapen and fragile nuclei, the control centre that houses the cell's DNA. The scientists tested a number of different chemicals to find ones that could shore up the structure of the nucleus and heal the cells, with their best candidate being a molecule called remodelin. Next, the researchers went on to find out how remodeling was working. They discovered that it blocks a molecule called NAT10, which was not previously known to be involved in ageing and seems to work in a different way from existing drugs. Only around 150 people worldwide suffer from HGPS, but the researchers hope their work might pave the way for treatments for other diseases that also involve ageing processes, including cancer, and even ways of tackling the problems of old age itself. An intriguing study published in Nature Genetics this month suggests the reason why men may have shorter average lifespans and a higher risk of cancer than women. It could be down to misplaced Y chromosomes. Female mammals, including humans, have two X chromosomes, while men have X and Y, with Y being much smaller than the X. Now an international team of researchers led by scientists at Uppsala University in Sweden have analysed blood from around 1,600 men. 
they discovered that the loss of the Y chromosome in a proportion of men's blood cells correlates with a shorter lifespan, as well as an increased chance of dying from cancer in other parts of the body, not just the blood. At the moment, it's not at all clear as to how the loss of the Y chromosome is having this effect. The male Y was previously only thought to be associated with jobs such as sperm production, so this is a big mystery that needs to be solved. But once it is, it could help to explain some of the disparities in health between men and women. Researchers have created cloned human embryonic stem cells from adult cells for the first time, according to a report in the journal Cell Stem Cell. Last year, researchers in the US managed to make cloned embryonic cells using cells from fetuses, but now a team from Korea and the US have achieved this with adult cells. The researchers managed to inject DNA from adult cells from a 35 or a 75-year-old man into donated human eggs, then kick-started them into dividing to create embryonic stem cells, very early cells that can create all the tissues in the body. However, their success rate was very low, with just two viable clone cells out of 77 attempts. While this technology is still a long way from being usable to clone living humans, if that's agreed to be ethically right, the technique could help with generating genetically identical donor organs for transplants. But it still remains to be seen if it's more or less efficient than the recently discovered alternative for generating stem cells from adult cells, a technique called induced pluripotent stem cells. And if you want to find out more about those stories, the references are on our website. That's nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out whether junk DNA is really necessary and meeting our crunchy fried gene of the month. But now it's time to hear more from the Genetic Society Spring Meeting, focusing on genes and psychiatric illness. During the course of the meeting, scientists touched on a number of ethical implications and concerns about their research, particularly testing for gene variations and faults linked to psychiatric conditions. So it was only fitting that at the end of the day, biological ethics specialist Professor Hank Greeley from Stanford Law School took to the podium to unpack some of these issues in greater depth. I started by asking him to explain some of his fears for this brave new genetic future. So I worry that people will get tests of themselves, their children, their fetuses, their embryos, and will be told, ooh, there's a 10 times higher than average risk that this person, fetus, embryo, will have schizophrenia. And then we'll act on it. In terms of the embryo, I'm not sure how great a harm that is. In terms of a fetus, where I'm... I'm uh, pro-choice in American terms. I'm, I'm not opposed to abortions, but I don't think aborting for a bad reason or for a scientifically incorrect reason is a good thing, going through that procedure for the woman involved. And then, you know, I think about kids. How would it affect a 12-year-old and his relationship to his parents in the world to be told he's at high risk for getting schizophrenia? Because, of course, carrying a gene variation or being told that you have this risk, it's not the same as having the disease. That's right. There are times when it almost is. So if you have 72 CAG repeats on your Huntington gene, that's the classic 100%. Everybody with the genotype gets the phenotype. But the psychiatric diseases, even if you believe some of the studies, and there are huge replication problems with most of them, the highest risks we're seeing are about 30% higher. And so if the background rate is 1%, as it is for schizophrenia, 
30% increase on 1% is 1.3%. You also have to be careful. People don't understand the difference between relative risk and absolute risk. And so 30% sounds like a lot. That sounds like 30 in 100 people getting it. Right. As opposed to, or it sounds like you're going from 1% to 31%, but you're going from 1% to 1.3%. And people aren't going to understand that. So I think we need to be very careful about how this information gets used with the public. I'm strongly in favor of making sure they're learned professionals in between the genetic information and the individual patient or consumer who can sit down and explain it and, and, and look at you face to face and see where you're confused or where you're troubled by something. Um, the the direct to consumer movement here has almost religious advocates, at least in the States, people who view, who say, you know, it's my genome, damn it, and the government isn't going to keep me from getting my hands on it. Um, I think that's crazy. The field that I know most about is cancer and cancer genetics. Do you think that psychiatric genetics is kind of a special case and needs to be treated with maybe more, more care and delicacy than other diseases that affect other parts of the body? On, on balance, yes. I'm a little reluctant to say that because I think we need to normalize psychiatric diseases. They are diseases of the body. They are diseases of the part of the body called the brain. And just like all liver diseases are liver diseases, mental diseases and neurological diseases are all diseases of the brain. And yet, I think in part because of the dualist notion that no, these are diseases of the mind or diseases of uh, demonic <laughs> or of demonic possession or something else, they are more heavily stigmatized and we do need to be more careful about them. It's also the case that they are harder in some ways to diagnose. You know, if you've got a malignant cancer, doctors may, pathologists may have trouble figuring out exactly what the underlying initial cell was, but they're not going to have any trouble figuring out you've got a malignant cancer. A lot of the psychiatric disorders, very difficult to diagnose, very difficult to define, and I think we see that in part with the weakness of the genetic findings. We know from things like twin studies or sibling concordances that a lot of these diseases have to have powerful genetic components. There's just no other explanation for why 1% of the general population would get it, but if you're an identical twin and your twin has it, you have a 70% risk. Or you have a sib, you have a 10% risk. There's got to be genes at work. It's just getting there, particularly through when it works through what I think is the most complicated known object in the universe, the human brain, there'll be a lot of complexity. Hundreds of genes involved, lots of lots of life experiences, probably lots of unknown and perhaps unknown, unknowable times when chance plays a role. So I do think we need to be particularly careful about it, mainly because of the potential for stigma as well as the fact that these are going to be about the most complex things. Any kind of behavioral uh, traits, whether it's a mental illness or something like math ability or personality, it's going to be incredibly complex. And as far as you're concerned, maybe looking into the future, the immediate future, what one thing are you most excited about the potential of, of genetics for understanding psychiatric disease? And what one thing are you most afraid of or concerned about? I'm most concerned about its possibility for misuse, that people will start using it too early and make decisions about themselves or their family members that will be bad decisions. And I'm worried about that because the... the incentives are all for hype 
and for uh, exaggerating the power of this, the social incentives for scientists, the incentives for journalists, the incentives for companies, all push in one direction, and that can lead to bad things. The hope is that this will tell us something about what causes some of these diseases, or maybe in some cases, how many different diseases we're dealing with. I'm not convinced schizophrenia is one thing. It's like we used to think hepatitis was one thing, inflammation of the liver. We now know there are a lot of different causes of hepatitis, and knowing that there are different hepatitises has helped us understand how to treat them and how to cure many of them. So it's an exciting time of learning more about what's causing these, and genetics can give us some clues and maybe even some real answers there. And uh, the amount of human suffering that could be avoided with some good treatments or preventions for mental illnesses is truly staggering. If, if I had the power to cure or prevent just one disease, I think I'd pick schizophrenia. 1% of the population has it. It's incredibly disabling and it's incredibly cruel because it usually strikes people as they're just coming into their own in their late teen years or in their early 20s. Normal, happy children become severely, severely disabled by this terrible mental illness. Anything that can help us cure that or even treat it better would be a good thing. And I think genetics provides some hope, but we're not going to do it tomorrow. It'll be a journey with lots and lots of steps, and we have to avoid overhyping any one of the many steps on the path to what could be one of the greatest benefits conferred upon mankind. That was Hank Greeley from Stanford Law School in California. And here's Harriet Johnson with this month's Listener Question. Listener Richard Thornley asks, if all the junk DNA could be removed from DNA, would we be healthier? Paolo Amaral from the Gurdon Institute in Cambridge explains, what is junk DNA? Junk DNA is a term that appeared in the 1970s to describe the part of our DNA that does not have the information to make proteins. To understand why it has been termed junk DNA, we have to briefly consider how we found out the functions of the main biological molecules. Proteins are very important molecules that make up most of the enzymes and building blocks in our body, including our skin and hair, and have been the focus of biochemistry for over a century. Since the 1950s and 60s, we recognize that DNA is the genetic material inherited from our parents and that it has the information to make proteins. We discovered this based on the study of bacteria, which are relatively simple, easy to grow in the lab, and in which most of the DNA is used to make proteins. However, there are many fundamental differences between bacteria and us. For example, it turns out that humans and other complex organisms have DNAs that are very big, and in fact, millions of times bigger than that of bacteria. And this was a surprise to many. Most of our DNA does not encode proteins. About 98% is non-coding, and only 2% has information to make proteins. At the time of this discovery, it seemed that all this extra DNA was disorganized and repetitive, and thus some considered it to be junk, and this concept has stuck for a long time. After decades of research, we yet don't know what proportion of our DNA has no function at all. If you consider that original concept of junk DNA, we could simply not survive without it. We now know that some of this DNA is actually very important, for example, for embryonic development, and that many diseases, including cancers, are caused by small defects in the non-coding DNA. This is now a very active area of research, and we are just beginning to understand the functions of non-coding DNA. 
For example, some of these non-coded DNA acts as switches that control when genes should be turned on or off in different parts of the body. Others make several thousands of molecules called RNAs, which have a vast array of functions on their own and are not used to make proteins. Interestingly, the part of our DNA that makes proteins are essentially the same in all animals. What changes is the non-coding DNA, which roughly increases in proportion in more complex animals, such as mammals, compared to more simple ones, such as worms or marine sponges. Therefore, most of the information that makes the animal species different from each other, including humans from other animals, seems to be in the non-coding DNA. So if you ask me what would happen if you could remove all the junk DNA from us and survive, I would say that we will all look like Baker's East at best. Thanks to listener Richard Thornley for that question, and also to Paolo Amaral from the Gurdon Institute in Cambridge and Harriet Johnson. And if you've got any questions about genes, DNA and genetics, email them to me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. And now it's time for our crisp and crunchy gene of the month. It's called tempura, named after the Japanese deep-fried battered treat. Found in fruit flies, tempura is a newly discovered component of something called the notch pathway, a biological messaging system that helps cells work out what to do. The protein made by the tempura gene controls the release of two other proteins in fly cells, called scabrous and delta, which are also involved in notch signalling. Researchers have discovered that tempura is a type of enzyme called, rather wonderfully, a geranyl-geranyl transferase, meaning it sticks small chemicals, called geranyl-geranyl, onto other proteins. A useful function, perhaps, but maybe not as tasty as being dipped in batter and fried. That's all for now. I'll be back next month taking a look at gene therapy. How far have we come? And where are we heading? If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. <laughs>